From Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. The Illinois House approved a plan today to allow legislative staff to unionize and collectively bargain. This bill would give employees equal opportunity to join a union and have their voices heard. Staff on both sides of the aisle would be able to participate in the proposed union. We know there will be challenges that are inherent to the experience of legislative staff, but we are experiencing conditions that are not typical or healthy nor sustainable for making a livelihood. Our pay is not adequate for the amount of work we do, nor the importance of the work that we do. This is a nod toward recognizing a union, but in this unique space, there are some things that we have to consider. And so we give them that right to strike, just not during months or session days are scheduled. Well, that's the Illinois House Speaker, Chris Welch. And before that, we heard from Kelly Cooperus, a legislative staff member, discussing that bill that would allow for unionization of legislative staff. It did pass the Illinois House. Those are some of the sounds of the first week of the fall legislative session. Lawmakers will be back on November 7th for the final time this calendar year. They'll work a few more days. And did we get some clarity on key issues here this week? We will talk about that and more coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield, and our panel includes Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former Director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. Charlie's also been a longtime State House reporter and observer. And our guest this week, good to have her back, Hannah Meisel, a reporter for Capital News Illinois. And Hannah, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Sean. So Hannah, typical of a fall session, a lot of settling in in the first few days, but there was some action, as we mentioned. Let's start off with this legislative staff union measure that's uh, been talked about for quite some time, and it's it's simmered, I guess you would say, but it's finally seeming to be uh, boiling up a bit more. And I guess to use an old phrase from the Capitol, is it soup yet? Is it going to make it all the way to the governor's desk? Uh, you know, we really don't know uh, this, like you mentioned, it passed the House, uh, but it definitely faces a much more uncertain future in the Senate. Uh, this group of staffers in the House Democratic Caucus, they had been uh, quietly trying to get their uh, union efforts off the ground and uh, getting the speaker to uh, voluntarily recognize the union since last year. Um, they went public with their effort in May. And uh, since then, uh, I think simmered is the right word. Um, you know, there were some criticisms hurled uh, to Speaker Welch this summer as um, the union effort perceived him to be kind of silent on the matter. And then finally in September, he came, the House Speaker Welch, he came out with this bill, well, this big grandiose statement, I support these uh, staffers' rights to unionize. However, um, it's, you know, we were, we're gonna have to do some legislation because even though, yes, voters might remember going to the polls uh, in November and voting uh, either way on the so-called Workers' Rights Amendment, which kind of provided an absolute right for every worker in Illinois to uh, unionize, you know, there are still existing labor laws that the uh, amendment didn't actually necessarily touch. And so uh, the law would have to change because right now, um, you know, the law that stretches back for decades, it kind of specifically exempts uh, legislative staffers from being able to unionize. And that's, you know, that's a thing in uh, many industries that certain 
workers have, you know, since the dawn of unions, just not uh, been part of, you know, being able to collectively bargain. Um, so yeah, so this is, um, you know, this is a fix to that. I think you saw uh, Republicans, um, you know, saying, I, I don't, this is an issue that might have unintended consequences. In the floor debate, you had new House uh, Republican leader, Tony McCombie, standing up and saying, we don't have these issues on our side. It's, you know, it's your side. And, you know, that's, that points to an interesting dynamic too. There are just so many more um, Democratic members of the House that have, of course, necessitated more Democratic uh, staffers. And it's, um, you know, the thing I've seen in the last 10 years of covering this is so many staffers from all places in government leaving, including those legislative staffers who do such like important, very difficult work. Uh, you've seen um, a switch from the old Madigan way of doing things that, um, you know, these staffers would be basically expected to work the legislative session and then in the off season switch to um, the you know, campaign payrolls. And uh, that is not a thing under uh, Chris Welch. I've also seen a lot of experienced staffers leaving, uh, people who it used to be that you would have to work for a pretty long time as a staff member in order to uh, be up to the job to go lobby, which was, you know, definitely a goal of a lot of people who come to Springfield. Of course, the pay is, it's not, it's not amazing. And, you know, in order to have your livelihood, um, there's a lot of people who come in from Springfield and no longer live in Springfield full time, um, you know, and a lot of people, especially if you're um, working for a Democratic member, you're likely living um, in the northeast corner of the state, uh, maybe even the city of Chicago, and it's not cheap to live in the city versus uh, Springfield. And so you have all of these uh, things moving toward uh, this unionization efforts. It's just been really interesting to see. Uh, you know, I one other thing I want to mention here is that uh, Illinois is not the first, but we would be among the first if this does go, you know, make it all the way through to the governor's desk. Uh, Oregon in 2021 uh, was the first state to allow their uh, partisan staff to unionize. Uh, this follows a longstanding uh, law in Maine that allowed their nonpartisan staffers to unionize. And earlier this month, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a similar law uh, and then efforts, unionization efforts in other states uh, for legislative staffers, uh, blue states, I should say, specifically, are in various stages. Charlie, uh, Hannah did not sell me on wanting to be a legislative staffer with some of the, the issues that they do have to deal with. But a few weeks ago on the show, you had mentioned where uh, you felt, because there had been some of the staff uh, that were coming out saying they, they're not getting anywhere with the House Speaker, is sort of stonewalling this issue. Uh, maybe he heard you, Charlie. You said it wasn't a good look, you <laughs> felt at the time for him. But what's your thought about this? Uh, you know, we, we've not really talked a lot about it. So, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, them being able to strike at a really key time when the budget is, you know, has to be approved, things like that, that, that could be problematic. So you could put some safeguards in there like they're talking about. What's your thought about this overall? I think basically, and, and I've said this before, I'm very much a pro-union guy. I'm still a lifetime member of the Chicago Newspaper Guild. 
and I think part of the difficulty that the organization, the organizers in the House staff encountered was that there was actually a law that said that legislative employees are not eligible to uh, bargain collectively. Now this bill that is being forwarded or that, that went through the House, I think the vote was 74 to 35, that removes that provision and says, yes, they can. And I think Hannah raised an interesting point where the Republicans say, well, it's not a problem for us. On the other hand, there are what, 40 Republicans and there are 78 Democrats. And historically, the operations, appropriations for the caucuses have been equal. I don't know what the exact number is this year, but if it was like, say, $10 million for the Dems, it's $10 million for the Republicans. And if you have twice as many members that you're trying to work with, uh, obviously, one would argue that, well, maybe your approach should be larger. I don't know if that'll ever happen, but I think there's a real point there. And the fact that Senator Harmon is kind of cool to this proposal means that it's very unlikely that it will pass in this fall veto session. And so it'll be kicked over for next year. One of the things that in, is interesting about this particular legislation, it has an effective date of 2026. So even if it were to pass, when the General Assembly comes back in a couple of weeks, if the Senate were to go along, pass it, send it to the Gov, Governor Prisker signs it, it still wouldn't take effect for like two years. So there is time to be able to work out whatever remaining problems there might be. We always talk about the need to have good people in, in government, especially, you know, elected offices and such, but staff just as important. Let me, go ahead, Charlie. Let me add one thought, too. I covered the General Assembly for basically 24 years. During the course of the time I was there, I relied very heavily on staff. Senior staff who'd been around for a while, who would take the time to explain stuff to a reporter who was not just looking for a quick soundbite, but wanted to understand. And I would argue that in my day, the legislative staff was probably more knowledgeable on public policy than the majority of the elected representatives and senators. Yeah. Another issue that's been getting a lot of attention, Anna, is one uh, that a lot of people on both sides of this that are ver feel very strongly, and this, it would extend a tax credit that is set to expire very soon uh, for a program that funds private school scholarships. Uh, didn't hear much about it here during this first week of the fall session. Anything happening with it? We did not hear anything official, but the halls of the Capitol, though, uh, were definitely loud. We definitely heard about it there because there were... Um, a lot, there seemed like hundreds of um, advocates had come to Springfield wearing blue t-shirts that said, save my scholarship. Uh, this is a uh, an effort um, that a lot of people feel passionately about. I mean, like a school is a kind of a heart of a community. I know it's cliche to say, but uh, you know, I know all of us, we have memories from being in school and um, you know, some of us, have friends who stretch back from our, you know, earliest schooling. And it's a very emotional thing for a family to decide what school to put your kids in. This Invest in School in Kids uh, Scholarship Program, to remind listeners, was born out of a deal back in 2017. Uh, then Republican Governor Bruce Rauner, of course, no uh, fan of teachers unions, uh, 
a definite um, proponent of so-called school choice and charter schools. Um, he had wanted in exchange for this big uh, evidence-based school funding formula fix uh, that would put $350 million more into public schools each year. Um, this was part of that bargain to get this $75 million uh, tax credit program. So basically, if I, as a private uh, citizen, or even, you know, someone who has school-age children that I want to send them to uh, private school, um, I could um, give money to a scholarship program, and then I would get uh, basically a 75% uh, tax break on, you know, th that money that I had sent. These kids are able to um, get that scholarship money and go to private or parochial schools. Um, of course, critics uh, blast it as a kind of backdoor school voucher program, uh, you know, public money into private schools, things that they are very opposed to. You know, let me say, it's just, it's really hard to create a program and then uh, create an expectation for families and then um, take it away. So I understand the, you know, amount of passion behind uh, trying to save it. Um, you know, I also want to say at the sunsets, this had a sunset built into it, a five-year sunset. Sunsets were a favorite thing of former House Speaker Mike Madigan. Uh, he loved to put sunsets on programs uh, so that, you know, people, groups, advocates would have to come back to the legislature every three, five, whatever years and ask for an extension of whatever their pet project was. Uh, also, by the way, would give um, you know, allies of Madigan, uh, those former staffers that we were just talking about who uh, seem to go on to have very successful lobbying careers, uh, give them an opportunity to uh, advocate either for or against said project. Uh, you know, and so it, I do think we should, uh, sunsets are clearly something that um, probably necessary to have in a, a legislative conversation because you don't want a program to just go on in perpetuity without ever, um, you know, examining it. But, um, you know, as we get further from uh, programs that were instituted under Madigan when he did want a sunset, uh, maybe we should look at more responsible ways to uh, kind of evaluate a program instead of um, arbitrary sunsets. But all that to say, um, you know, this, this scholarship program, very important to a lot of people, but uh, definitely opposed by you know, the extension of it very uh, hot on the other side, people who uh, oppose it and say that it's not right to have public money in any way going to private schools. Um, there is talk of, you know, a compromise. Um, it, I, uh, Mike Madigan, uh, coincidentally, his uh, replacement in that 22nd House District, Angie Guerrero Carrer, she uh, introduced a bill um, to, you know, that has a compromise language on it that would shrink the program from the $75 million uh, to $50 million and would kind of incentivize, um, you know, more middle income people to give instead of, you know, have it be a kind of tax giveaway for just anyone at any income level giving any amount. Um, you know, and also there's people who say like, okay, if we are going to keep the scholarship program alive, it should be a lot more 
exact and a lot more um, you know, targeted at these low income uh, students that we are claiming to try to help. Um, you know, I think that that compromise does have some hope, but um, as we were talking about before the show, uh, Charlie pointed out, uh, that language that uh, the representative put uh, into a bill, that bill is a new bill and um, would not have time to go through the entire uh, House and Senate, um, you know, based on our three-day reading rules. And so if, uh, if a compromise were to be reached, we would know it was serious if that language was put on a vehicle bill that had already been through one or more chambers. Now, Charlie, you're familiar with the private school system. So, you know, get your thoughts on this as well. I mean, there's certainly arguments to be made on both sides of this that I can understand, like Hannah was saying. Um, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, it, the, you know, funding private schools is something that especially among Democrats in the Illinois legislature, has always been something they've tried to shy away from, at least many of them, even though there are many parochial schools in northern Illinois where many Democrats represent. Yeah, and I think the, the question comes down to, as Hannah said, to what extent should public funds go to private schools at a time when we're not funding public schools adequately? And people who are opposed to these tax credits would also say there's nothing to stop someone who wants to make a donation for scholarships to a private school. They can do it right now. Uh, maybe they wouldn't get a credit, but the way the law is structured, the current Invest in Kids program says if you take the tax credit through the state program, you're not allowed to deduct from your federal taxable income, that contribution. Whereas if the program were to sub to, to sunset, then you could deduct a donation you might make to your local private school. So there's a lot of back and forth on it, but I think this is an issue that is not going to be resolved this fall. As Hannah said, the, the quote compromise was introduced as a brand new piece of legislation did not even get a first committee hearing in the House, if I'm not mistaken. And then it would have to go to the Senate and go through the three-day process over there. So unless they find a vehicle bill, it's not going to happen. And it may not even get out of the House. One of the things that I thought was interesting was that the, the for want of a better word, the, the Freedom Caucus in the House, the very, very conservative members, the Darren Bailey group uh, have said, we can't be for this because we want it to be without any sunset and we want it to be unlimited. And this is too restrictive, so we won't vote for it. So I'm thinking to myself, oh, if that's maybe six, eight votes that legislation is not going to have, there will be quite a lot of opposition from Democrats and maybe even some Republicans who are in districts where the education, the IEA, Illinois Education Association, or the Illinois Teachers Federation is very powerful, the city of Chicago. This is going to have an uphill climb under the best of circumstances, in my judgment. And as I say, it's not going to happen this fall. 
So before time does tick away from us on this week's show, I do want to mention as well, the governor this week came out and talked about a new state agency that he wants to create. And Hannah, this one uh, would tie a lot of issues that sort of get, um, you know, get put in different state agencies all into one. What's he talking about here? Right. Uh, This, as uh, of yet, unnamed state agency um, was announced this week. Um, This is not a new idea. It came out of um, a group that the governor put together way back in 2019 during his first year in office. But basically, uh, the idea is that, um, you know, three different state agencies currently uh, handle early childhood uh, related uh, programs. And, you know, just like so many uh, things in government, um, these agencies tend to be siloed. Um, so currently, you know, the state's early child education services spread out over those three. Board of Education administers early childhood block grants, ch- help fund preschool programs. Um, Department of Human Services administers programs that subsidize childcare costs and home visits, and things like early intervention services are really, really important for uh, especially lower income households. And DCFS is in charge of licensing daycare centers, uh, which uh, interestingly has come up recently. Uh, There's been a couple of uh, hearings um, in front of the Joint Committee on Administrative Rules where uh, legislators have kind of let DCFS have it over um, kind of delays and red tape when it comes to daycare licensing. And so the idea is to take all of these services and put them somewhere else in its own unified agency. So the governor signed an executive order to kind of get the ball rolling. But eventually the legislature would need to uh, kind of create this new state uh, agency in, with uh, statute. The I think the last time we had a new state agency was, could be wrong, but I believe it was 2015 uh, under Governor Bruce Rauner. Um, the creation of the Department of Innovation and Technology, the DO-IT, um, as it were. There probably will be some cost of doing this. Maybe it will be uh, offset by more efficiency, uh, but I'm sure that will be one argument against. But we don't, like Hannah said, it's been, what, eight years since the last one? And I don't know, before that, it's we haven't had that many. So it isn't something that happens all that often, but sometimes I guess the need might be there for something to focus in a little bit more on certain issues. Yeah, and I think that's the, the idea behind it. Uh, and the governor, when he announced it, said that it's early childhood programs have to be unified uh, have to focus on serving children and families. And he he said that uh, it's time for Illinois to have this unified child care service, as Hannah announced. And the cost, the, there will be added costs, but on the other hand, if responsibilities that are no, now lodged with three different agencies are consolidated, presumably those agencies would not need that many dollars to carry on those responsibilities, which they would no longer have. So there might be some cost savings. And in terms of the impact on the on Illinois families, being able to have, for want of a better term, a one-stop shopping place will be a real benefit, I would think. So I think that it's a, 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 a good plan, and I hope to see it enacted. Let's go now to our notes from the field, and Charlie, we'll stick with you and let you go first. Well, one of the bills that was under discussion heading into the veto session 
was the governor's mandatory veto on a, a piece of legislation that would have given Illinois utilities, specifically Ameren, Illinois, which serves much of downstate Illinois, uh, given them what's called the right of first refusal on building the new transmission lines and other infrastructure needed as we switch to a, a more carbon neutral electric generating system, more wind power, more solar energy. And there's there's got to be a lot of work to build up the grid. And so Amron and the unions proposed the notion that Illinois utilities should have first dibs on getting the work. And the argument is that that way you can be sure that we have Illinois companies doing the work, paying Illinois union workers, Illinois wages. And the flip side, and, and governor said in his amendatory veto, striking this particular right of first refusal provisions out of a, a bigger piece of energy related legislation. He said that uh, basically giving this monopoly power would result in higher rates for consumers. Looking at it going into the veto session was well, will this attempt to override will it succeed or not. And shortly after the fall session started, uh, the electric utilities, Ameren and others, and the trade unions said, well, we don't have the votes to be able to override the veto. So we're just going to go ahead and wait and try and do it next spring. And we're going to try and educate people on why this is such a good idea. Meanwhile, and I think this is kind of interesting, the U.S. Supreme Court is being asked to look at a decision by the federal appeals court. And I believe it's the fifth circuit that said that a Texas law providing the equivalent of right of first refusal for utilities in Texas to expand their grid, that it would violate a clause in the in the federal commerce uh, legislation that prevents states from passing laws discriminating against commerce across state lines. And so the, the, the circuit court or the, the court of appeals in Texas said, no, you can't have these kind of laws, these right of first refusal laws, it violates interstate commerce. And now the issue is before the, the US Supreme Court and will they allow right of first refusal? Because if the, if the Supreme Court says, no, you can't do it, it violates interstate commerce. Well, that's the, the end of, of the push here in Illinois. All right, Hannah. One of the bills that Governor Pritzker vetoed this summer was one that would require schools and state-run facilities like uh, prisons and uh, hospitals attached to public universities to offer kosher and halal food uh, services. This was a bill that the governor kind of vetoed on tactical grounds, uh, not that he was against the concept at all, um, but um, in the Senate on Wednesday, um, Senator Ron Villavallum pushed it through on a 43 to 15 vote 
uh, with some tactical changes that um, you know the State Board of Education would have to enter into master contracts, and then uh, the districts could kind of choose to uh, you know go with one of those vendors that ISBE has entered those contracts in. It's just a really interesting um, you know piece of state government, of course, uh, very very personal to those who abide by these religious dietary guidelines uh, that they would have uh, options. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of State Week. Our panel included Charlie Wheeler and Hannah Meisel with Capital News Illinois. You can find our show where you get your podcasts through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. Just look for State Week. Join us next time. I'm Sean Crawford. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.